0: This is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Mark Hopwood.
0: With us today is Martha Nussbaum, Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. And she is here to talk with us about the capabilities approach. Martha Nussbaum, welcome.
2: Well, hi. It's great to be back on the podcast.
0: The capabilities approach has largely defined itself in contrast to other approaches to measuring how developed a country is. Um, So maybe we could start by asking about one of the standard ways of measuring that, namely GDP. Do you think that GDP is a good metric for determining how prosperous a country is?
2: Okay, well, for a long time in the development world, people thought it was GDP per capita, of course. And uh, they thought that it was just the best single number that you could have. Now, I think nowadays people doubt even that, that if you want a single number focused on economic issues, average household income is actually a more pertinent number because GDP picks up on foreign investment, and the profits of foreign investment are often repatriated by the investing nation, and therefore they don't actually improve the quality of life of the people in that country. So even the narrower type of economists that we're arguing against would nowadays prefer to use average household income. But beyond that, any single number that's an average fails to take distribution into account, and it can give very high marks to nations that contain staggering inequalities. So that South Africa, under apartheid, where 95% of the country failed to qualify for the fruits of the nation's prosperity, would rank very high because there was a lot of stuff around there, never mind who controlled it. Now, that leads me to the second problem with GDP. It uh, doesn't pick out and separately study a lot of different elements of the quality of a human life that are very pertinent to development. Things such as health, education, longevity, but also the quality of political liberties, religious liberty, race relations, gender relations. Now, the latter group, that is the political and civil and religious liberties, are not well correlated at all with GDP as the staggering success of China and Singapore can show you right off the bat. But even health and education, so even goods that look socioeconomic, are actually not that well correlated with the average GDP. Uh, my collaborators Amartya Sen and Jean Drez have for years studied the different Indian states where health and education are subjects that the Constitution gives to the states to manage. So it's like an experimental laboratory because the states pursue different economic initiatives, but they also run the health and education. And what we find is that pursuing a growth-based agenda doesn't trickle down to deliver improvement in health and education. So states like Andhra Pradesh and Gujarat that have shot for growth have not improved the quality of education and health, whereas Kerala, which is usually the gold star child of the development literature, because it does have 99% adolescent literacy in both males and females against a background of 65% male literacy and 50% female literacy in the nation as a whole. Kerala is actually a poor uh, state whose economy has not grown well. Now, I don't think that's good. I think they should have pursued different economic policies. But the fact is, they've been able to improve not only education, but also health. Their health outcomes are the same as those of Harlem in New York. Now, that's shameful for the U.S., It shows you the staggering inequalities in our own system of healthcare distribution, but it's a pretty good thing for a poor state in India. So in short, it doesn't tell you how people are really doing. Now, maybe you would move on next to a utility-based approach that would measure how well people are doing by looking at total or average utility, but that has some of the same problems. Again, it's an average, and it can give high marks to inequalities. And it's also an aggregate. It doesn't separate out and differently consider different aspects of quality of life. But the utility-based approach has a couple of other problems that are worth mentioning. And that is that because it's based on the satisfaction of people's preferences, it doesn't grapple with the problem of what the economists like to call adaptive preferences. That is, preferences where people tailor their sites to the level they think they can expect – People don't like to live lives of hopeless longing for the most part. And so they uh, learn not to want and long for things that their political culture has put out of their reach. So women don't report dissatisfaction with the amount of education that they've achieved. So that's another big problem for the uh, utility approach. And then another final problem is, it's a, a philosophically interesting one, that it focuses on a state of satisfaction rather than on agency and really being involved in your life. And so if you think of the famous thought experiment that Bob Nozick concocted, the experience machine, it could give high marks to the guy who's plugged into the experience machine and who feels satisfied but is not active at all. So for all those reasons, we reject that approach as well, even though it's a little bit more interesting than the GDP approach.
1: So that's a lot of different approaches. So to summarize, I guess what we're interested in is development, how well a nation or particularly its people are doing, whether the nation and the, and the people are flourishing. And you've talked about the ways in which very basic quantifiable economic measures don't seem to work for tracking that. So there are ways in which nations can be doing well in GDP, they can be doing well in more sensitive metrics like household income, and still be doing poorly in other areas health and education, but two that you mentioned, that we think are important for a flourishing country or, or flourishing people. But then the bare idea of just doing well, if we consider that in terms of the satisfaction of people's preferences, also doesn't seem to be a great metric. We have the problem there of adaptive preferences. Um, people just get used to a bad state of things. So all of that leads us fairly neatly to the approach that Amartya Sen in particular and yourself put forward, the the capabilities approach. One thing that you mentioned earlier was the range of different things that we might be aiming at when we're thinking about a nation or a people doing well, that there are these very different scales on which we can be doing well. It's not obvious that they can all be boiled down to one. And it seems like this idea of a kind of irreducible diversity in different ways in which we can be doing well is central to the capabilities approach. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I think that it's intuitively pretty obvious that if you ask people how they're doing, they uh, often give you a very complicated answer. They might say, well, you know, my health is good, but one of my children is unemployed. And furthermore, I'm worried about future of political liberties in my country if if you're in China, for example, you might say that. And so they give you a mixed answer. And so the, the aim of the capabilities approach like a good national constitution is to spell that out, say which are the things that we really should be striving for for each and every person. Now, you can do this just comparatively. And what the human development reports of the United Nations Development Program do is simply to have comparative rankings and to rank nations in a different way. And so now you can look down the table and find out how infant mortality or maternal mortality, a hundred things, are doing in lots of different countries. What I've done is to go go one step further and ask which are the central ones in terms of basic social justice? Which are the ones that up to some threshold level have to be guaranteed to each and every nation if you were to lay claim to even a minimal level of decency and basic justice. And I do that partly because I think you do have to get specific if you're going to really do anything with this approach. I mean, we could compare the capability of standing on your head and singing Yankee Doodle Dandy. but Who would want to do that, right? So implicitly, even in the UN report, they get specific when they pick the ones that are interesting to compare. But, you know, I'm interested in constitutional law. Constitutional law and constitution making. And, uh, you know, when nations uh, get together, they always do ask this question what are the basic entitlements that we want to secure to each and every citizen? So, in my view, the capabilities are uh, the way we answer that question. We say that it's really certain capabilities are opportunities, they're spheres of choice that have been put in place for people. In other words, the capability of religious liberty, freedom of conscience doesn't mean you have to go out and function in accordance with religion. But it's a space of real opportunity that you can avail yourself of. And, and that's true also with health and education. That is, I believe, in compulsory education for children. That's an exception. But on the whole, what we're interested in is spheres of opportunity, not compulsory functioning.
1: A nice example of what you're talking about there is one you've used yourself, which is the idea of someone fasting. Yeah. So, we might say, well, for someone to be flourishing is for them to be eating the right amount for a human being. And clearly some people do not eat the right amount for a human being for a particular period. But that doesn't mean they lack the capability to do so. It means they're not doing it right at that moment. So that's the, yeah. the distinction that you refer to as the distinction between capability and functioning.
2: Yeah, and there are two reasons for focusing on capability. One reason is that, I mean, any comprehensive ethical conception that I personally would favor would make room for spheres of choice and would say that what matters is that you choose it, not that you have it thrust upon you, but more important for political purposes uh, where every modern nation is irreducibly plural and people have different comprehensive conceptions of value, and like John Rawls I think that you're only justified in introducing political principles if in principle they could command an overlapping consensus of all the reasonable comprehensive doctrines but that means that you have to try to figure out what people could possibly agree on. And I think it's clear that they couldn't agree on a list of functions that constitute human flourishing. But that everyone should have certain opportunities is a different story. Because take fasting. Now, some religions think that you shouldn't be well-nourished for certain parts of your life. But of course, to have opportunities for nutrition, that they could sign on to. Some people, again, think that religion is really awful and if you're a Marxist you would think that, but uh, on the other hand they needn't be opposed to religious liberty and I think most most people who have that view today are perfectly happy to defend liberty of conscience or take even voting. Now some nations do have compulsory voting and then people like the old order Amish who think that it's actually against their religion to participate in politics are under great stress there, but in my view, they wouldn't have to do that. They have full opportunity, but they aren't forced to go out and do it. Now, often it's very hard to tell when a person really has the opportunity, except by seeing whether a sufficient number of them actually go out and do it. So that's a measurement problem. That's an epistemological problem. But theoretically, there's a a reason why we shoot for capability and not actual functioning.
0: So the core of the approach is to think a bit about what are the basic capabilities or opportunities a person needs to have in order to live a fulfilling life? What are those opportunities, in your opinion, that a person needs to have?
2: Well, uh, you know, I I have this list. It's tentative, it can always be revised, and it's really a template for persuasion and discussion. But there are 10 that I put on the list, and uh, I spell each of them out a little bit more concretely. But life, bodily health, bodily integrity... The development of senses, imagination, and thought, under which I include things like uh, basic education, but I also include freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so on. Emotions, emotional health, practical reason, being able to form a conception of the good and to engage in critical reflection about the planning of your life. Various forms of affiliation is the seventh one. And then the eighth one is relationship to other species in the world of nature. And uh, that's one that I've developed further in thinking about animals. And I actually think that animals also have entitlements, but that's a separate issue. Uh, And then play and leisure time. And then finally, control over one's political and material environment. So each of these are spelled out more in the list. But they're also still pretty abstract because I think each country will just spell them out further in accordance with their own history and traditions.
1: There's a further distinction that might be useful to talk about at this point between the senses in which one can have these capabilities. Uh, You talk about cases where in a particular country, women, for example, may in one sense have the capability to be fully engaged in the political process in that they could do it if you gave them the chance. They've had the right kind of education. They're perfectly capable of going ahead and doing it. But in another sense, they really don't have that capability because the institutions aren't set up for them to do so. There are structural obstacles to their doing that. So that seems like an important distinction to make, and you make it in your work.
2: Yeah, so this is the distinction between what I call internal capabilities and combined capabilities. It's not a particularly lovely uh, set of terms because internal really aren't entirely internal. That is, that woman would not have the internal capability of being able to participate in her uh, political culture if she hadn't had an education, a good home, and so on, things that do come from the outside. But it means having developed powers such that, under suitable circumstances, you could go out and choose that. So education would be paradigmatic of something that gives you internal capabilities. But, as you say, you can have that, and then just be put in a position where you can't use that. If you have a developed religious conception and your country doesn't allow you to have free exercise of religion, well, then you don't have what I call the combined capability. So the combined capability is the internal one plus suitable opportunities for the actual choice of that function. And this is the reason for making this distinction is to spell out two different ways things can go wrong and two different points of intervention that can make them go right. That is, in some countries, as you've said, the the problem is at the level of the combined. So it's that the political culture has put obstacles in the way of the actual exercise of a given function, but people are educated fine, they're treated fine, they're ready to go do that. But there are other cases where it might be the other way around. That is, a country could guarantee the political freedoms, but do so poorly in educating people that there are impediments to their actually doing that in an effective way. And I think India is more in that category. That is, uh, you know, with 20% of teachers uh, not showing up on a given day in the schools, well, how well are people actually prepared to avail themselves of the political opportunities that they undoubtedly do have?
1: So there's a fairly, I guess, intuitively obvious objection that people often make to the capabilities approach and to your formulation of it, which is that it can be hard to believe that there can be a definitive list of such capabilities. And it seems like that people advance two kinds of objections. One is just to say something like, there must be different lists. Different societies, different cultures must have different lists. There can't just be 10 capabilities for all human beings. And so there's a kind of general objection to the idea that you could possibly have just one list or that we could really name these at all. And then the further kind of thrust that that objection will get from some people is to say something like that it's imperialistic um, for an American professor or an academic in general to tell other people in different cultures what it is that they need in order to be flourishing. This kind of objection gets raised quite a lot and has an intuitive kind of appeal. uh, So I wonder what you would say in reply to that.
2: Well, I mean, the first one, I would just say, look... uh, no one says it has to be 10. You could carve this up in lots of different ways. And probably, as time goes on, there will be additions and there might be subtractions if people come to um, convince one another that this isn't important. So it's it's out there as a template for discussion. But we actually do see tremendous convergence when people get together and they try to make constitutions and they do have a bunch of things they're shooting for. There's a tremendous overlap between this and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so, you know, no accident, because I studied that and I studied the South African Constitution and the Indian Constitution. So, you know, I learn from what people are doing elsewhere. On the second one, I think that that's a vexing one. And of course, the first thing to say is uh, it is just a humble template for persuasion. It's not an attempt to enforce anything on anyone. Furthermore, it's actually made mostly by people who are from non-Western cultures. It was uh, dreamed up by Amartya Sen, an Indian, and the people in our association come from 80 countries. So, uh, you know, I'm just one of them. But the list, of, of course, was drawn up by me. So I want to say something more about that. I mean, the first thing then to say beyond that is that the list is very abstract in general, precisely to leave room for each country to spell these things out in its own way freedom of speech. Now, we could agree that in general and in the abstract, that's a good thing for people everywhere to have. I think we could agree on that. But uh, how we spell out that right in a more concrete sense will depend on the history of your country and where you're coming from. So that Germany's free speech right is much narrower than the free speech right in the U.S. because anti-Semitic protests, organizing publications, and so on are all illegal under German law. And that would not be the case here. In fact, the right of anti-Semitic protesters to march has been defended by the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, given the different histories and and the problems faced by those two countries, I think both decisions are correct. So we want to leave plenty of room for that kind of reflection. Another thing is that, as as I said earlier in the interview, It is meant to be a basis for political principles in a pluralistic society. And that means it's introduced for political principles only. It's not grounded in any deep metaphysical way. It's meant to be, over time, the object of an overlapping consensus. So all of that, I think, is important even in a single society, because all the major religious and secular conceptions are in almost every single country now. So the problem across nations is just a slightly larger version of the problem that you get within each nation. And then, you know, by making capability the goal and not functioning, we do something that protects pluralism again. Because if you you can agree to a certain opportunity without agreeing that you would use it. Furthermore, another point, um, if you don't give very strong protection to freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of association. It's very, very difficult to protect meaningful pluralism so that, in an ironic way, being universalistic is being pluralistic. By protecting those spaces for everyone, you give robust protection to the ability of people to organize in lots of different ways. And then the last thing that I would point out is that I have said nothing about enforcement. It's all about persuasion and international argument. And in my view, if it's ever going to be implemented, it will be implemented by people in the nations of the world making their constitutions. So there's nothing about marching your troops into nation N and uh, trying to enforce the capabilities. I actually think that humanitarian intervention is justified only in a very, very narrow range of circumstances of traditional genocide, crimes against humanity. So um, there's nothing, the imperialism charge, I think, is really fueled by the thought that if we're once persuaded that something's right, we'll try to enforce it against people who don't recognize it. And I just don't think that that follows at all.
1: That makes a lot of sense in, in response to the, the charge of, of imperialism or the wrong kind of universalism. But to press the point a little bit further, one specific thing that someone might worry about is the idea of this theory being particularly individualistic. And one of the things that you emphasize about it yourself is that the capabilities approach is interested in individuals rather than, for example, averages or... Numbers or money. It's interested in individuals and their functioning, and it takes, in an important sense, the individual as central to the theory. But what if someone were to say, "Well, that's a very Western liberal democratic way of of looking at it," and you might contrast it with the kind of approach to political life that said, "Well, in the ideal nation, people are going to have really different roles." Uh, you know, maybe the way that countries need to work is for one set of people to play one kind of role, one set of people to play another kind of role, that really our starting point should be some larger unit, the nation as a whole, or perhaps it should be the family, or perhaps it should be the village, but that making the individual the starting point is going to lead to perhaps some of the negative consequences of Western culture that theorists will often criticise.
2: Well, I think it's very... Strange that someone would call this Western, because where did the idea come from that has dominated all of our lives, if we're women, that the tax system is based on the household, that the family is thought of as a black box into whose distributions we don't inquire? All of these are Western values. And in fact, every time you fill out your tax return, you are buying into a non-individualistic way of counting people. And the leading theory of the family until quite recently was the theory of the family for which my colleague Gary Becker won the Nobel Prize, which just simply makes the assumption that the head of the household, of course, who will usually be male, is a beneficent altruist who will distribute everything inside the household adequately. So we we just need to look at the household then. We don't need to even ask what goes on inside it. Now, of course, if people are hungry, and that happens particularly in, you know, in con- poorer countries. Every day you have to think how much food you're going to get. You know who is getting the food because you feel the hunger. And so in a way, it's a middle-class luxury to be able to think of the family as a seamless unit. But if you're starving, you, you know it's your body that's not getting the food. And if you see your girl child wasting away because she's getting no protein, you know that that one has not gotten the same as the other one. So actually, poor people that I've seen all over the world are extremely conscious of the individual as a distributional unit. And the problem was that because of these dominant Western theories of the family that were non-individualistic, couldn't even get data on distributions within the household and what are girls getting, what are boys getting, and so on. So, I mean, then the whole idea that we should assign a monetary value to a woman's household work, that is an idea that was challenged in the first place by economists like Bina Agarwal from India and also by feminists in, in the U.S. like Nancy Falbray. But no, I mean, I think individualism is, it comes natural to feminists because we see that by, by being counted as part of a group, you're losing out big time. And that is the way that the deaths and uh, malnutrition and so on of girl children are masked all over the world. So, you know, nothing in this approach is against love and care and affiliation. That's one of the most important things on the list. But it should be affiliations that people go for themselves, not things that are thrust upon them in ways that marginalize and devalue them. And unfortunately, most systems of group-based rights, do end up marginalizing and devaluing women, which is why I think one should be quite skeptical, even of the idea that religious groups should exercise political power and so on.
0: So what are the, some of the ways that this approach might actually be implemented in practice? What are some of the policies that you would like to recommend we adopt?
2: Well, I think the first thing is to get information in a different way and to package Rankings and comparisons in a different way, then people will sit up and take notice, and that 's already happened. The human development reports in the u n have made nations quite aware that they're falling behind in ways they didn 't realize, like the fact that the u s is usually around number ten in the world because its health data are so poor compared to other countries has made people worry about that and notice inequalities in health care in the nations but then I mean it would suggest just the policies that are a flourishing. Social democracy would normally adopt—that is, to protect both the political and civil liberties of people, and to promote their socio-economic rights, and, and to understand that the two are linked together. So, I think it does suggest particularly strong emphasis on education, because in many, many circumstances, that's a conduit into all the others. It's what Jonathan Wolfe has called a fertile capability because it, it spreads out and it, it enhances others. Uh, I think you would also want to campaign quite a lot against domestic violence as something that in Wolff's term is a corrosive disadvantage because it undermines so many others. It makes women afraid to participate in politics, afraid to seek employment, And it just undercuts their physical health, their emotional health, and their longevity. So, you know, if you notice which ones are most blighting, you would probably shoot for those first. And that might be different in different contexts. If you have a nation that doesn't have such a high rate of domestic violence as ours, you might focus on something else. But in any case, you have all these 10 to shoot for, but then the question of where you intervene is a question of where intervention in your particular context makes most sense. And we've got this wonderful association with 800 members from 80 countries, and a lot of people are doing good work on this, so we'll see where that all comes out.
0: Martha Nussbaum's book, Creating Capabilities, is available from Harvard University Press. Martha Nussbaum, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Okay, thank you very much.
0: If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian.uchicago.edu L-U-C-I-A-N, slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.